Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My guest today is Mr. Mark Manson. Mark, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Mark, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, your your career has has shifted so much. I mean, you you started off as a blogger and now you've moved into this sort of entrepreneurship. I mean, you've written a, a couple books now, right? Uh yeah, this is my second book, but it's the first with a the publisher. The book has a not-so-subtle title. It's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. Was was the self-help industry something that was, I mean, I think you've said this, I think the, the self-help industry is pretty saturated, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's very crowded. Did you feel like you had to put this book out because because of that reason? So I have a certain style of writing, which is I tend to be very irreverent, vulgar, <laughs> Um, incorporate a lot of humor into my work. And I think on the one hand, that that has helped me differentiate myself. But I also think it's it's integral in some ways to to the topics that I write about. Yeah, absolutely. The The back flap of your, your cover says, in life, we have a limited amount of fucks to give. So you must choose your fucks wisely, which is hilarious. I mean, but I mean, let's dig into that. I mean, how, how do we choose our fucks wisely, as, as you say? Well, essentially, it's what we're talking about. It, it is values. And what the really what the book is about is our values. Like, what are we choosing to find important? What, what are we choosing as like the drivers and motivators in our lives? And I think a lot of people don't consciously decide those or, or very few people actually sit down and think about those, like where they came from, why they adopted them. This book is very much designed to help people ask those questions. Do you think, I mean, do you think that there's a lot of snake oil going on in the industry where people are kind of running seminars and they're moving into coaching and kind of doing these different things to kind of lure people in? Yeah, I think, I think snake oil is kind of, it's a pretty strong word. I, I'm sure there's some of that. I think there's a lot of good intentions <laughs> that are misguided, misguided good intentions in this industry. A lot of people who honestly believe that they are helping others and that they want to help others, but it, there's a little bit of like a blind leading the blind. Yeah. Going back to your values, I mean, like, what are, what are those, some of those core values that we can kind of identify with? So the, the book makes an argument for things that are pretty simple and ordinary. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of our culture, not just self-help, but a lot of our culture in general is built on this idea of doing incredible things, having incredible experiences, uh, pursuing more, more, more all the time. And I wanted to make the argument that, you know, maybe a happy and, and stable life doesn't come down to always achieving or having more. Maybe it comes down to simplifying and being satisfied with less. And that's a very uncomfortable idea for many people to consider, hence why all the humor and the fucks that are flying around. Basically, it's I make an argument for, for the mundane. It's 
the stuff that really matters, the stuff that really drives happiness, and this isn't just my opinion, it's research backs this up. It's it's very mundane things. Good relationships with your family and friends, having being good at something like working on something that you're good at, uh, feeling as though you're contributing to the people and community around you. Like it it's really doesn't get much more complicated than that. The second chapter of the book is called Happiness is a Problem. And how does how is happiness a problem? <laughs> The, the argument I make is that to be happy, you need to have problems because happiness is a byproduct of solving or overcoming problems. And, um, and basically, that, that whole chapter in a, in a very core message of the book is that struggle, pain and struggle are necessary for happiness to exist. And I think a lot of people, one of the first places that people get misguided is that they assume that happiness is a lack of problems. It's by just not having any struggles in their life or avoiding all the struggles in their life. And and actually the opposite is true. I mean, you've had, if we can bounce over to, you know, your career, you've, you started blogging pretty early on, right? Yeah. Like 2007, 2008. And, and then you, you gained a lot of traction in sort of the dating approach kind of community, right? Yeah. How does a person move from, kind of guiding people to become better at with women than to, you know, the, what you're doing now. So what happened was I, I started back in 2008. I read, so I read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss <laughs> right. and, and I was like, sweet, that sounds easy. Uh, I'll start a website. <laughs> and, and I started a few websites and what I quickly learned is that making money online is extremely difficult and um, requires an insane amount of work. But one of those websites I created, I, I created, I tried to create a number of online businesses around my own interests. And being a 24-year-old single guy at the time, I was like, cool, I'll start a blog about dating. And the first few years, it was very, it was a very generic site. You know, it was, the articles were things like, you know, three things to do on a first date, you know, or like, how to get her to call you back. You know, it's the shit that you would see on Cosmo, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. And um, and the funny thing is that as the years went on, I kind of, I started to get a lot deeper and more personal with the stuff that I wrote about. And as I did that, people responded and a readership started to grow. And by 2011 or 2012, to my surprise, I discovered that a large percentage of my readers were actually women. So I had... I was writing this dating advice site for men. And whereas I had started out talking about like first dates and text messaging and stuff, but after a few years, I kind of entered into this place of talking about identity, self-worth, honesty, vulnerability, all of these like very kind of heavy psychological topics that I felt weren't being discussed in the men's dating world or, or just by men in general that I felt like needed to be addressed. And it started attracting a lot of women to it. That's surprising. Yeah, I was very surprised. And I started actually sending, so my first book is called Models Attract Women Through Honesty. And a lot of these women were telling me, they're like, your da- your advice is great, not just for men, but for, for us too. And so I actually started sending a number of women models. And I was like, can you read this? And like, tell me if it's good. <laughs> tell me if like, if this makes sense and if this actually applies to you. And, and so some women started reading it and they, they all came back and they're like, yeah, actually this is, 
even though this was written for men, it's better dating advice than I've ever seen in any woman's book. And um, so I started asking myself, I'm like, oh, well, then why the hell am I just writing for men? So in 2013, early 2013, I, I rebranded the website, relaunched everything to be gender neutral and to just talk about life issues in general. And the other thing too, the other thing that kind of drove it is that dating advice, people who struggle in their in their dating relationships, their perception of their problem is something very simple. So their perception is like, oh, like men never call me back after the first date or, you know, women are, they like to be my friend, but they're not sexually attracted. But once you actually like start getting deep into the problem it turns out that really it's it's a very the real problem underneath their dating problem is actually just a general life problem you know it's their their lifestyle or their identity isn't completely sorted out for themselves or that they have trust issues or they have a lot of sexual shame that they need to deal with and and the symptoms, the the things that they thought were the actual problems are actually just symptoms of some sort of deeper problem. So I wanted to write about those deeper problems um, and how they apply in life just in general. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that it happens a lot when I, when there's a problem, it's, it's something actually deeper rooted that is actually affecting, you know, kind of my life output. I mean, one of the, one of the chapters in your book is just the value of suffering. It's called the value of suffering. How does suffering help us is kind of a general kind of question. I make the argument in the book that pain exists for a reason. I kind of go through this funny little (laughs) biological summary of like why pain exists. You know, if you think of something as simple as like stubbing your toe or like, or when you're a kid, you touch a hot stove, it hurts. It hurts really bad. And the reason it hurts is because it's your biology's way of teaching you not to do that again it's your biology's way of teaching you how to to learn how to how to do something different in the future how to adapt and the same is true for psychological pain you know whether it's a breakup or a business failure or an insecurity or an anxiety what these things really are is that they're they're psychological feedback they're they they are feedback coming from your brain telling you hey, you need to look at this in a different way. You need to, to try a different method or try a different approach to whatever you're doing. And so in that sense, it's it's actually pain is incredibly important. And if we try to avoid it or forget it, we're actually depriving ourselves of that ability to evolve and grow past it. Yeah, there's a, a great quote that you say, our lives hinge not on the ability to turn lemons into lemonade, but learning to stomach lemons better. It's basically learning the art of resilience. Because And look, optimism is great. I think people should be optimistic. Um, positive thinking in a lot of situations, it's good. It's good to like stay on the sunny side. But... I think, and this is one problem I have with the self, like a lot of the self-help world, is that life just sucks sometimes. Like, <laughs> there's really no way around it. You know, it's like if my dog dies, there's nothing good about that. There's no, there's no silver lining. There's no, you know, it it just hurts and it sucks. And a lot of things in life are like that. And that I think that needs to be okay. It needs to be okay to hurt because. One, like I said earlier, like a lot of our biggest lessons uh, and a lot of our strength comes from our ability to withstand a lot of this pain. But um, but two, it's we need to 
stay grounded in reality. We need to stay realistic um, about what's going on around us so that we can make good decisions for ourselves. And I think a lot of people, when they get caught up on in kind of this like delusional level of positive thinking, um, they start ignoring or denying the rea- the reality around them. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, you you talk about how growth is an endlessly iterative process. We don't shift from being wrong to just being right. It's kind of something that just builds and you, you learn that. I mean, it's what I say is we, we never go from being wrong to being right. We go from being wrong to being slightly less wrong. At another way I put it in the book is that problems are never permanently solved because the solution to one problem is the genesis of the next problem, you know? So um, maybe I have money problems and I solve that by going and getting a job. Well, the job creates new problems. I have to deal with politics at work. I have a a really frustrating commute every morning. Um, I have stress of the projects I'm assigned. And, And then my solutions to those problems will create the next higher level problems. And so what I say is that the, the key to a good life is not getting rid of your problems. The key is actually just having very good problems. And um, that process of solving one problem and creating a better, higher level problem, it, in my opinion, that's, that process is actually what brings a sense of accomplishment and fulfillment to our lives. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, when you were, when you were coming out with, um, models and books like that, I mean, do you, do you think that you were kind of polarized in, in your reception to kind of the community? Did you feel like there were people who either hated you or loved you? (laughs) Early on, for sure. I mean, back when models came out, the majority of the men's dating advice industry was, it was still your classic kind of like pickup artist stuff. It was like, oh, dude, you got to like go bang a 10 and, you know, like show her this and say this to her and and neg her and and stuff like that. And so I knew when I, when I was putting it out there that um, I was likely setting myself up for a lot of extremely harsh criticism, but I, I believe very strongly in the message of the book and, um, and so initially it was very polarizing and I got called a lot of funny names by certain people in the industry and by a lot of guys in the industry. But I've been very happy that it seems that actually that book has influenced and altered the course of that industry. I see not only is it one of the best selling books in that industry now, but it's it's a lot of the other companies and, and coaches that exist in that in- industry, I, I think, are saying a lot healthier stuff these days than they, than they did say five, six years ago. You've had some pretty bold posts like on just through your blog. There's one called why everyone on the internet is an asshole. And <laughs> then you talk about how kind of the internet warps perception. Let's talk, let's talk about that a little bit. Like how, how do you feel about the way the internet changes social behavior? I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic and I have been for a couple of years now. And, and look, like, I think I'm not, I'm definitely not anti, I, mean, I can't be anti-internet. Like it gave me my career, but I think it's just, it's interesting because as every new form of technology that comes out and makes our lives better in in so many different ways, I think it also brings a new array of problems with it that we as a society or a culture have to like figure out how to surmount. And I think the interesting thing about the internet is that because it's so 
globally connected and so anonymous, it makes it extremely easy to objectify not just people, but opinions, points of view, perspectives. And when you objectify a, a person's perspective, it's, it's easy to just shit all over it and not, not fear any repercussions or not have any sympathy for it. And, and so in many ways, this amazing tool that has given us access to more information than you know anybody in the human race has ever had has also made it easier for us to indulge some of our worst instincts and to be more judgmental and, and close ourselves off. One of the main points that you make in in this post is you talk about how confrontation has no negative social consequences. And I, yeah. that's obviously true. I mean, how it, so, I mean, how, how has it changed for you? Like moving from kind of this internet based persona into kind of a real life thing? It's been interesting. I mean, I think one thing that kind of growing up, so to speak, as a writer on the internet is that it's, it's really, I feel like it's really made me impervious to criticism. Um, there's been a lot of funny, uh, just like small moments over the last couple of years working with uh, my editor and my agent and people at Harper uh, where there'll, there'll be like little things where like they'll get really worried that like my ego is getting bruised. <laughs> and I'm like, do you realize how many people have like told me to kill myself, <laughs> you know, through email over the last five years? Like, no, I, this is totally fine. This is not a big deal. Um, so it's weird. It's made me a, it's made me jaded, which I think has its both its 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 pros and its cons. On the one hand, I think I'm much more impervious to maybe a lot of things that a lot of authors go through when they're publishing their first book. But on the other hand, I think I'm more cynical than a yeah. lot of a, yeah. a lot of authors, which is I, unfortunate. I can I can definitely understand that. I mean, as as this show has kind of grown, I mean it. It's like the hate mail that we get. I just it just doesn't affect me as much anymore. Just it after a while, it just doesn't get to you as much. Yeah, and there's a weird thing, and I I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's a desensitization on both sides of the spectrum, which is the hate mail doesn't bother me as much anymore. But when I get those emails where people are like, "Oh my God, you changed my life. Thank you so much." You know, like I still appreciate it, but I feel desensitized. You know, like five years ago, whenever I received an email like that, it was like it made my whole day. Yeah. Like, oh my god, yeah. this is this is incredible. Um, but now it's like, sweet dude, thanks. <laughs> Good luck. You know, and it, and it's not even you know I, I'm not I'm just being honest like, because it's you're just bombarded with so many messages, right. both positive and negative, from so many people. Um, that after a while, it becomes hard to really invest a lot in in any of them. Absolutely, I was I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and you know, when we first started out, when we would get an email saying something like you just said, like the, you know, the show's changed my life, I, it made my day, and now, I mean, not to take away from anyone who sends a, an email like that to us, but. Um, it's, it's not, you know, it doesn't, I'm grateful for it. I'm happy for it, but it just, you know, that, that desensitization that occurs on both, it does occur on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. So where you talk about, there was another post that you did called, uh, the pyramid scheme of positive thinking. How does that work? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, the article is, is the staggering bullshit of the secret. 
Oh, um, right. Yeah, that's right. It's the that was the main article. Yeah. Yeah, the, and the pyramid scheme is a section of that. Right. I knew I knew I had written this somewhere, <laughs> but I was like, I'm pretty sure the article's not called that. It's funny. I actually just so I just did. I just got off another call before I got on with you, and I was talking to this guy, and it it he wasn't interviewing me. He's actually he's a, a speaking agent, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the positive thinking thing, and he was saying that he like doesn't take clients who do that sort of thing that mo- that sort of like motivational speaking type stuff. Right. And he said that he told me, he said he literally had this conversation once with, uh, one of these like types of motivational speakers. Um, the motivational, he said, what, what, what is your goal with doing speaking events? Like, what is your goal to get across to the audience? And the guy was like, uh, well, I want to inspire them to do great things in the world. And because that the world, all the world needs is, is people to be more inspired. And then the speaking agent, was like, well, I actually think we should probably like figure out how to cure cancer or AIDS. So yeah. why don't you work on that? And the guy was like, Oh, but I can inspire people to cure cancer or AIDS. <laughs> and, and then the guy, the guy was like, okay, so like, but then what do these people end up doing? You know, these, these people in the audience usually turn around and they, they decide that they want to be a coach and they want to go inspire people. And so you get this kind of this really funny pyramid scheme of, and this happens a lot in the online world of of people who, for instance, people who will like teach a course. They'll they'll create a course on the internet that teaches people how to create courses on the internet. And then <laughs> yeah. these people will take, and then the people will take the course, and then they'll go create courses on the internet, teaching other people how to create courses on the internet. And and you see this in all sorts of different ways. You know, people. I I've met people who are life coaches who the majority of their clientele, they're teaching how to become life coaches. And, and it's just this crazy thing that just, it's pervading everywhere. And I think, um, and a lot of what enables it is this idea that simply feeling good is, it's good enough. You know, it's like, if I can just say a bunch of stuff that people in my audience will be like, wow, that feels great. And then tell them to go tell other people, it'll just keep getting passed on. And, you know, one, I guess, where I put my foot down both in the book and on my site is like, no, feeling good is not good enough. <laughs> like if you want to feel good, just go like snort some cocaine or something <laughs> like, like there needs to be a higher standard to a good life than simply just feeling good all the time. Right. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I really find it interesting. I mean, the, the industry is definitely intriguing to, to say it lightly. I mean, it it does feel like a pyramid scheme I and mean, it 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 seems like it kind of wraps you in and you know like you you need to keep going back for more it's almost like a drug i find your career fascinating because you you went from you know this sort of dating aspect to this it, it's it's not self help but it is where i mean where did this formula come from and like what what else are you doing where do you say that your content is is hitting the most right now it tends to be uh, so i jokingly say you know when i meet people in in real life um and they they say like oh what do you do and i i'm like oh i'm a writer and they're like oh what do you write i say i write self help for people who hate self help and it's funny because so many people I meet are like, I think I would love that. <laughs> you know, like I think I think the desire to improve your life is a pretty universal one. I think everybody 
if they're being honest with themselves, like wants to have a better life and, and achieve more and be more successful and feel better about themselves. Um, but I also think there's a lot of people, especially in the younger generations, like, uh, you know, say 35 and under, who just kind of sense that a lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of the self-help stuff from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that it, it, it's kind of BS. It's right. not really, not very authentic. Um, it sells well, but it's it's cheesy. And And so I think those are the people I'm hitting. It's like... This is, I'm offering a viable alternative. Um, right. That's not just the same old cliches over and over again. So then you would say that, that your content is hitting towards the self-help industry or is it still with the dating stuff? Oh, it's definitely self-help stuff. I mean, it's at this point, the dating relationship, I think, is uh, a minority portion of my audience. But um, but yeah, it's weird. It's like a weird type self-help. I mean, it's technically self-help, but, um, I kind of like go against the grain yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So there's one thing that you just in my notes is that, you know, you, you started out and when you were, when you were kind of starting out, you, you were approaching like these, these agencies to publish your stuff, like these online, like Huffing, Huffington Post and stuff like that. And now they're coming to you. You're being interviewed by, by Forbes and CNN and, and Vice. And I mean, how does, how does that switch feel for you? I mean, at first it was a little bit of an ego boost, right? Like it's, it's suddenly all these publications, I was practically like begging to like, give my work to, to get more exposure a few years ago, you know, a few years later, they're, suddenly they're knocking on my door. So that always, that feels nice. Like I think on, anybody can relate to that. Um, it feels like a little, a little victory for yourself, but it's funny. It's fun to me. It's if I stand back and kind of remove my, myself from the equation, I think it's kind of, it's a little bit representative of the, the weird place that the, the publishing industry is in because of the internet it's like you yeah yeah on the one hand anybody can start a blog and start publishing on the internet and that's great but the the truth is is that you know the you have to the people who control um what gets spread around the most they, they still ultimately kind of have a have control and it and it's a situation of like the rich get richer so Back when my articles weren't read by many people, um, you know, like Huffington Post didn't want to have anything to do with me, then suddenly I start having some hit articles and develop like a really big fan base. And now it's Huffington Post wants to publish any everything I write. So <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a weird dynamic. And I don't know how, I, I feel like it. there needs to be like, I don't know, so the publishing industry needs to sort it, itself out in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is that there needs to kind of be a clear path again to go from like an unknown nobody to like getting your work disseminated pretty yeah. widely. Like right now it's not very clear how that happens. You just have to like try dozens of things and hope one of them works. Has that, has, has this whole process like affected your sense of, I mean, I, you know, like you have a hundred thousand readers, 500,000, then a million and then 2 million. And, and I mean, you're just, has this affected your sense of success? Yeah, it's been weird. And, and this is actually one of the inspirations for the book is that I always dreamed of a lot of like a lot of the stuff that's been happening to me the last couple of years. Um, 
it's literally what I dreamed about when I was starting out, like in my in my mid twenties. Right. And it's interesting that it doesn't feel the way you expect it to. I mean, it's great. I mean, it it's there's no way I could ever complain about anything that's gone on the last couple of years. But it's it's weird because it it doesn't it doesn't feel as good as you expect it to feel. The benefits aren't as good as you you expected them to be. The problems are bigger than you expected them to be. Um, it complicates lives life in ways that you didn't expect. And so su- experiencing a, like a, a large success like that is it's actually a very sh- strange. It's a very good experience, but it's a very complicated experience. And um, this kind of being the first like really big success in my life. Um, it was very disorienting at times. It was very strange. And it, it kind of made me start asking, like, does it really matter if, like, 2 million people read me or if it's, like, 100,000? Like, does this really matter? Because at, at a certain point, it just doesn't even feel real anymore. Like, the difference the difference between half a million and 2 million, like, it doesn't even feel real. It's it's all just, it's just a digit, you know? And, um, and so it started really getting me to ask myself a lot of these questions about that I talk about in the book, which is just, like, what actually matters here? Like what is, what is actually driving my life and what should actually drive my life? And, um, and it kind of put me into this like little mini existential crisis for a little while as I started writing the book. And, and that's kind of a lot of like where this, these ideas came from. Yeah, I can, I can imagine, man. I mean, it's, it, it seems like, I mean, these are all pretty healthy questions. I mean, did you, do you happen to kind of go stoic with this or, I mean, there's a little bit of Buddhism in this to kind of label it. Yeah. And I mean, how, how did you get to a point where you were like, okay, well, you know, the value of suffering and, you know, the re kind of reframing positive, positive thinking. And I mean, like, like what was, what was the driving factor? Was there any certain philosophy that you were kind of modeling? Well, I, I was very big into, Zen Buddhism when I was in college and I it's interesting I kind of got away when I graduated I kind of got away from it but like that's like my roots is a Zen Buddhist background and going through my 20s I was very highly motivated by a lot a lot of very conventional goals you know it's like I wanted to have a successful business I wanted to have I wanted to be own my own business. So I wanted to have a lot of free time. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to have, you know, date a bunch of amazing people and have amazing relationships. And, um, and it, it was kind of what I was talking about at the end, at the beginning of the podcast. So it, I had a lot of goals based on more, 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 get more, yeah. succeed more, have more, do more. And that was great. And then what happened is I started achieving a lot of those goals, you know? So I, I did, I did travel whole world and I did see all these amazing places and I did have a bunch of amazing experiences and I did build a successful business and I became a successful writer and and it, it left me like I said in that kind of like that weird state of existential crisis of like oh what does this all mean <laughs> you know why why none of this matters what what am I doing with my life and and actually I noticed that a lot of that Zen stuff came back started coming out, you know, 
Um, I, I always tell people that my writing is, it's my own form of therapy for myself. Like everything I write, it's not that like, I know all the answers and I'm telling everybody else what to do. It's, it's literally like I have the same question. And so I'm trying to write my way out of it. Mm. And, um, so as I was writing all this stuff, um, I noticed that, that the Zen stuff, which is extremely similar to stoicism, um, it's all about, you know, Zen and Zen, they all, they talk about a lot about not knowing, um, and how, how to get comfortable in a place of not knowing. And, um, you know, Buddhism itself is very big on, you know, life is a form of suffering and you have to like detach yourself from your emotions. And, um, so all this stuff started coming out again. And, uh, and it's funny because I guess I didn't really realize how big of an influence it, it actually had been on me, um, until recently. Yeah. Was there, I mean, was there any single kind of like mentor or someone that you had influencing you through this process? Um, not a specific person. No. I mean, I've, I've always had like writers and artists that I've looked up to, um, as like good examples of like this sort of stuff that I want to do. Um, but yeah, there's nobody, I mean, again, the, the weird thing about internet publishing these days is like, there's no real, nobody's really figured it out yet. You know, we're all still kind of grasping in the dark, um, trying to figure out what, <laughs> what works, like what's going to be sustainable. Yeah. I mean, who, so then who, who was someone that influenced you like kind of remotely? So, I mean, there's some writers that I really look up to, uh, a big fan of, huge, huge fan of David Foster Wallace and his, particularly his nonfiction work, I think is just like, I mean, his fiction's fantastic as well, but his nonfiction work is staggeringly brilliant. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, Alan Watts is a big one. Um, I don't know if you're a South Park fan, but uh, there's a South Park episode called Simpsons Did It. And it's basically the entire South Park episode is like the kids keep coming up with these like crazy ideas. Um, and then it's like every time they go out to start doing it, it's like, oh, no, Simpsons Did It, episode 328. And the whole, the whole episode is basically just a joke of like every unique idea the South Park creators have had, the Simpsons already had it. And I feel like that, I feel like that like, with Alan Watts, it's like any like really powerful idea. I, I feel like I have, it's like Alan Watts already wrote about it 50 years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mark, I really appreciate your time and what's the next, what's kind of the next journey for you? What's the next step for you right now? It's, I'm still kind of basking in the afterglow of, of this book release and, um, finally winding down with the interviews um, I'm really looking forward to just getting back to the website, getting back to the blog. Um, I've got a ton of ideas for articles I want to write, but I just haven't had the time to write them. Um, and then I think, um, you know, probably after maybe a year, like maybe end of next year, I'll get cracking on the next book. So where can, where can people find your work? Markmanson.net and, um, and, the book is called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life. And it's available everywhere. All retailers, Amazon, everywhere. Awesome. You said it for me, man. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
This is the human experience. We will see you guys next week. Thank you guys so much for listening.